may as well. Yeah. It's going to be recording you. Now I <laughs> with, have with a small fine. me. Yeah. And I don't know why I'm, I've got an extra picture of you in the corner. I'm getting rid of that. Oh, that's probably called recorder, but it is recording. So um, huh. at least it's telling me it's recording, and I've got a stop button. All the levels are right. So. Okay. Okay. At, a, I'll, at I'll a minimum, I'll have a video of you with a minimal me uh, right. in the top corner. That's yeah. it. That's it. And you know, that from a Buddhist a... from a Buddhist perspective, that's a very fine thing. A minimal me. That that's actually a good name for a book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't don't steal it. Let's mm. cut this out of the recording. Well, actually, here's something. <laughs> we had an idea this morning for a book that I am going to write, and this is it's it's. It's so simple, it's so unexceptional, it's so unspecial that it's special. It's called Be More Human. Huh. Now, let me just talk about this a little bit because there's a very funny story attached to it. Olivia, we were thinking of, I've mentioned this on a couple of recent podcasts, so if I'm boring um, listeners who've listened to other podcasts, too bad. Um, that, in that includes me, Kit, so I'll, <laughs> thank I'll, you. I'll start blazing over and you'll have a... A live response. <laughs> well, please do. That's great. Um, so I mentioned on one of the recent podcasts that Olivia and I were contemplating working with a particular teacher and she had a, a what I call a moment of perfect clarity or, or an MPC. And she said, I'm only interested in practices that will help me become a better human being. And I, when I heard that, it absolutely struck me. Um, you know, with the force of a, re of a revelation. But when I spoke to my ex-apprentice, Dave Wardman, you know Dave well, um, he said, what does that mean? And mm -hmm. I wrote back to him very sternly and I said, everyone knows what that means. That's just the mind playing with you. Mm. Be a better human being. Everyone knows what that means, even if it's really hard to put into words. And that is something that is worth exploring, I think, just what it means to be a better human being. But anyway, thank you for asking me to do a podcast with you and the reason we've decided Tom and I am talking to the audience now Tom and I have decided we are doing a split screen presentation is because I intend to ask you as many questions as you're going to ask me well that's the intention anyhow but Olivia is probably cracking up in the background thinking that <laughs> no, this guy just can't stop talking well I'm, I'm going to demonstrate that I can I'm stop talking now you know kid I think you and I both have the same tendency where we're <laughs> Continually promising that we're about to finish a sentence or a, or a thought and then never finishing them. And, well, because everyone uh, leads to another one, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, um, I did write down a few things, but I don't know that they're necessary. I think we have plenty to talk about and I don't need hmm. notes to talk from. But I did note that down. Oh, okay, become a better human being. And I do think everyone knows and perhaps the, the faculty we have for that is the conscience, right? That 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 kind of nudge that you get, ah, oh, you're not, you're not doing the right thing, and this, although although of course, I mean, and maybe this is why you've raised your hand, is uh, that can be thwarted, or we can change our conscience, right? We can mm. condition our conscience to to feed us different messages. Mm -hmm. So perhaps it's not the most reliable uh, voice, but it can become it can become that, I think. But yeah, what would you say? I mean, well, for the for the first for. The first comment I would say, conscience is a very Western idea, and this is, and I know we have talked off camera about um, various events that have happened in both of our lives that have led us to our present state of awareness, whatever that is. But conscience, or 
I think Freud called the conscience the superego, didn't he? he? It's the it's the parents or the stern voice that sits above and behind your right shoulder, um, commenting on the things that you're doing or contemplating doing, and then deciding whether or not that's a good thing. Right. But, it's but, like an sorry. No, go on. Sorry. It's like an internalized version of culture. That's right? exactly what it is, and mm -hmm. or and even worse, it can be is an internalized version of you. And so in many ways, a lot of Western people are fundamentally schizophrenic, I believe. And, I'm, and, I, and so we have to be very cautious about listening to our own inner voice, because unless that is modified or perhaps modified, not quite the right word, unless that is situated somehow in a larger collective voice, it can definitely lead you astray as anyone who's got drunk and done something destructive or stupid knows. And incidentally, that brings me to the fifth precept. The, um, when, I, when I teach in the, the monasteries that I have taught in, um, in Asia, as a teacher, you have to live and behave like the monks in that monastery. And the fifth precept is, well, it's normally translated as avoid intoxicants, but it, the, the more precise translation, and for me, the far more interesting and far more or the one that speaks of far more possibilities in terms of internal exploration is avoid the heedlessness caused by intoxicants. That is a far more powerful idea. And what I mean is that in the West, we tend to just blanket proscribe this or ban that, or it's so simplistic. It's just a knife that goes in and cuts two things in half. And we'll talk about that a little later too, probably, because that is the mind's first operation. And you asked me off camera, what led me away from my philosophy and, and logic studies to the things that I'm more interested in now, and that's one of one of those things. The fact that logic can't model changes in time. That is a profoundly important thing. We'll talk about that another time, though. But so, so now getting back to that first comment on your comment is rather than allowing your conscience to dictate or prescribe your actions or comment on your actions far better in my view to be connected to your heart center mm. now this is such a foreign idea in the west but it's absolutely fundamental in all spiritual schools all spiritual schools regardless of whether they're um, north american indian or whether they're um, a buddhist or whether they're jain or whether they're you know sufi there's no difference they all talk about reconnecting to your heart center now, to a Westerner, and possibly to some of our audience, they might well ask, what does that actually mean, connecting to your heart center? And that's a very mind-centered question, if I may comment. But, but, it, but in our culture, because science is the, the subtext or the dialogue of our culture, regardless of whether people actually understand science well or not, and certainly so many commentators actually don't have a really good handle on the limits to scientific knowledge, which was what my PhD research was on, um, it, it becomes a rod to beat people over the head with, if, 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 if you know what I mean. And so sometimes a, a, a modest understanding of science can be more or can do more harm than good. So anyway, what do I mean by connection to the heart center? Well, many cultures speak about or and we in fact in the West here also talk about a gut feeling about something. Now, can our guts lead us astray? Well, definitely, our, our gut can lead us astray, yes. But the difference is, and I think this is a big difference, is that logic and mental processing don't play a part in the gut being led astray. 
that's in, they're actually separate systems, at least in my experience. And I've, as a meditator, I've spent an enormously long time, thousands and thousands of hours, trying to see and to feel these things pre-verbally, if I can say that. I, I, of course, I'm talking, so nothing that I will be saying will be pre-verbal, but this is the important thing to consider, at least. What would, And this is actually what really led me back to Zen studies after a long period of time away from it, I realized that, and this is also a central part of being a better human being, I wanted to experience reality directly. Now, people will talk about this. It's a common thing to be spoken about, but my, and it might sound, this might sound like a very critical assessment of my fellow human beings, but in my experience of many human beings, I think it's common that people are not interacting with reality directly. They're interacting with a model of reality that literally exists between their ears. And this is one of the greatest sources of conflict and problems between human beings because we assume that the way we see things, the things that we hold dear, the things that we don't value, and all the other things that come from dividing the universe in half, the half that we want and the half that we don't want, However that axis is configured, and this is the mind's first act, in fact, but we'll, we'll come back to this, I hope. The fact is, the human being that you're talking to or interacting with doesn't see the world the same way as you do. And this can be at a gross scale, of course, if people are arguing with each other. That's a perfect example of a gross you know, detachment, if I can put it that way. Um, and in fact, when both people are angry, neither neither is seeing reality in any way clearly at all. But we will, as our anger fuels itself, and I know at least anger used to be a real problem for me personally, it isn't so much anymore. But normally when the anger is running hard, there is the certainty that the perspective is accurate. Mm. Now, and that's immensely dangerous because anger fuels us with energy and a whole bunch of other things. It also makes us immensely destructive, can make us immensely destructive. So for the, the it's very interesting and, and it's a long way around to, to making the final point, but the word Nibbana in Pali or Nirvana in Sanskrit, however it's properly pronounced in Sanskrit, and I don't really know a lot of Sanskrit, it actually means a cooling so the word for enlightenment doesn't mean the things that most people that have no meditation practice or don't really understand a great deal about the Buddha's worldview would not see anything attractive in the idea of cooling. But that's actually what it means, cooling and finally extinguishing. And what, what he was talking about, at least as I understand it, is this idea of not detaching yourself from what's going on around you, but rather they describe it as non-attachment. So the capacity to be a witness, if you like, while actually being involved, if, if that makes any kind of sense. What I mean is that as soon as you remove yourself even partly from the heat and the passion of a particular exchange, and I always use negative examples when I'm talking about this kind of thing, because they're so much easier to understand. Everyone, everyone understands that, everyone gets that. A fight with your girlfriend or a fight with your boyfriend, or, or worse, your parents. You know, yeah. everyone gets that. That's when a certain non-attachment to 
the process can be immensely helpful and immensely useful. And I personally have found that very helpful in my own life. I remember. Yeah, I was. Sorry, you say something and then I'll. I was, I was hoping we would talk about that because I've had a similar. I was also, I would say, very angry, easy to anger by nature. But then I think I have a similar experience to you. When I met you, my the thing that I was struck most by you is I could see your anger. And I don't mean that in a negative way. God, there are so many, you have so many brilliant qualities too. But I could see that you were working with it. Mm. That's powerful. Um, yeah. Anyway, go on, please. I was hoping we would talk about, well, I had a, a question in mind, which was, at what point, or was there a, an experience you had specifically that made you realize that, that your mind couldn't solve all your problems for you. Um, was there a moment or is it a gradual? Was it, I'm sure I mean, you can have an epiphany and then do nothing with it. Right. And then it's nothing. So of course it's always ongoing, but. And in fact, that's a really telling comment. And then I'll come back to, to answering your comment because the, the major, I, I wouldn't like to put a, a number on it. I started to say the majority, I let us not say that many spiritual schools in fact, are based on the founder of that school having had an epiphany of some sort. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can be experiences life changing, but they don't on they don't keep on doing the work. And so, and so two things happen here. One is that there's a certain righteousness and a certain certainty about the point of view of the, of the person who's doing the teaching. And secondly, the path that led them to that epiphany will be promulgated as the this is the this is what this school teaches and this is how you shall do it but in my own experience and i have been truly blessed to work in a number of different traditions i can tell you um, all paths lead to rome is that famous latin saying used to say and by that i mean it doesn't matter which path you choose if you've got a good teacher your own self will be reflected to you back to you so that you can actually see it clearly and so the moment that I had, and I've kept on working because like the Taoists, we just don't believe in you have an epiphany and, you know, okay, I can kick back now, I can sit back mm. and smoke a cigar. Not that I wouldn't mind smoking a cigar or have a cognac. Mm. Um, the job is done. No, in, a, in all the traditions that I have worked with, the job is never done. It is simply that if you have any success in the approach at all, it is simply that you see a bit more clearly and you function in normal daily life uh, more present more often. But uh, I, li I like to say that my name's not Padma Sambhava and I'd, I wasn't born on a lotus leaf floating down that famous river in India um, who came into the world fully enlightened. And there are such people. Or well, even the Buddha didn't come into the world fully enlightened. He was a householder, as you know, before he went on his long trek. Anyway, you asked me about a moment here is the moment for me and i've seen this so clearly so many times since then too and that is we each of us now i'll talk about my personal epiphany first and then i'll i'll talk about the larger context which everyone i hope can relate to the fact is if you have the experience of seeing the shape of your own mind clearly it will be shocking to you Mm. and not in a good way. Mm. I remember I was working with a teacher and we were in the kitchen of my house 
And I suddenly saw that it's so hard to put this into words, but each, like I'll, t I'll say it from my perspective, and then I'll try and broaden the perspective. I realized in that moment that I cannot not see the world through my own filter. I saw that clearly. Now you might ask, well, what perspective, this is a typical Western logical question, what perspective was that seen from? And that's a very good question, and perhaps we can come back to that. But uh, there's a very famous mathematician and logician called G. Spencer Brown. I don't know whether you've heard of him, but to me, a genuine genius. He wrote a, a small, immensely dense, simple, but profound book called The Laws of Form. It was a calculus that is designed to allow all calculuses to be understood. So absolutely brilliant uh, mathematician, this guy. But also he was a famous economist as well. He was a true polymath and he, his work is definitely worth delving into in my opinion. But in a footnote in the preface of his book, the most profound thing that I have ever read was written. And what's more, it is literally the Buddha's starting place in his own system. And what he wrote was, what G. Spencer Brown wrote was, a universe comes into being the instant a distinction is made. Full stop. Now that's not profound. The next bit is profound. All distinctions are motivated. Mm. So here's the thing. Each of us carves the universe into the half that we want and the half we don't want. And the axis of that carving is the particular shape of the filter that you come into this world with. So for me, and I suspect for you as well, I'm just going to get a blanket, I'm starting to get cold here. The, the filter for me personally is right and wrong, should and shouldn't. What is my obligation here, etc., etc. It's that kind of perspective. And the response in the body is anger. And if you dig into your anger, and I don't know the, the, the shape of your anger, but it is that something is not right or something is wrong or there is what the Buddha would describe as there's a profound unsatisfactoriness about the situation you find yourself in. But here is the interesting thing. Once you understand this stuff deeply enough, you'll see that someone else who does not have this particular filter in exactly the same situation will have a different internal response. And I'm sure you and Ben, for example, your brother, your completely different personalities, just as my own brother and I are. And th that realization or that comment that I just made would have been something that you have experienced yourself in your life with Ben many times, I'm sure. Yeah, um, I had a early on. It's just funny how these things come to you in different ways, right? Like for me, the first experience of noticing how much my perspective on things changed things and was motivated and whatnot was uh, working as a door-to-door -door fundraiser when I was 17, which Ben had been doing yep. and encouraged me to do. And you just get immediate feedback at every single door, immediate feedback about how you're on how you're presenting yourself and how you're seeing things. And it was kind of a profound, when I think back on it now, and my boss at the time is now a spiritual teacher himself, which doesn't surprise me, 
quite a profound experience to before each door reset and try to because this is the other thing is perhaps we're trying to view things more neutrally as they are as you said and more, I, i'm not more directly if i may say because neutral itself um suggests a standpoint doesn't it a perspective already right right so, and so what, what i'm trying to say and it's so hard to put this in words so please don't feel that i'm criticizing if you're using those words because that they're, they're such blunt tools and they're the only ones that we have right mm -hmm. but what i mean by experiencing things directly and, and i will I, please do continue is to experience things with no filter in between that is to say the perspective or the shape of the mind or i like to say the furniture where the furniture in your mind is organized where that is actually no longer part of the process of apprehension that you can experience reality directly for me when i first heard that um proposed as a goal i thought fuck what could be more what could be more important than that right right anyway so please go on well and we spoke briefly before i'm not certain that i've had that experience or at least having it am i having it consistently because my process to this point has been one of trying to condition myself to view things differently so it's like the 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 piece of clay is the lens and i'm molding that lens in a different the example i've been using a little bit recently is if you walk down the street through the neighborhood and you see someone what's the immediate effective response not what's your first thought but what's your first feeling upon seeing them is it a stranger threat or is it some kind of neutral feeling or is it oh this could be a an opportunity for an interaction a positive interaction an op an openness to what could be um and that's the sort of thing that i've been working to to try to develop to recondition that lens in a more positive direction um i'm not sure whether yeah you might be able to share some tools for trying to experience things more directly as you say or without without a filter uh, but definitely my whole um journey <laughs> has been one of playing with trying to transform the the lens the lens itself and that realization came partly through those you know through this door-to-door -door fundraising experience you would have an entire day of no, no successes and then four successes in a row it was just clear that whatever was however you were seeing things was so compelling that the other person was seeing them the same way um whether that was good or, or bad <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but then also in my studies as well, as you know, I studied philosophy too, and I was studying affect. What, what, what effect does seeing, cause the seeing is in the same moment as the, as that demarcation that you're talking about, right? That happens simultaneously. I smell the coffee and in the same moment, I feel like drinking coffee. Mm -hmm. And in the same moment, I've decided to drink coffee well, and then... This is very, very, the, the, what you've brought up, the point about affect, and look, look for our listeners, let, uh, affect is a very technical word, so let's just, yeah. let's just unpack it a bit. Firstly, it's a very important word in psychology and psychiatry, but, but at, it, at its root, as I understand it, it means emotional response, affect, rather than um, some cognitive response, which that's mm. not to say that affect can't drive cognitive response either. So let's just talk about this a little bit. This, we, 
there's a, a little mind game, a little thought experiment. We philosophers love words like that, Gedanken, it, it is in German. A thought experiment that I talk about on workshops to get this point across in a, in a, a very efficient way. So let me just do that now. Let's say you're at home with your loved one. You've had a glass of wine. Now there's a romantic mood in the air. And the phone rings. And so the phone ringing, that has no impact on the romantic mood. You're carrying this mood with you. You walk over to the phone. You pick up the phone. And in an instant, the instant of hearing the voice, and this is, it's, this is worth slowing time down if we can to really unpack what happens here, in as soon as you lift the phone to your ear, my, in my story, it's always an old-fashioned phone that you know rings. A ring, a phone that rings. It doesn't have a rotary dial, but it's actually a landline. Mm-hmm. Pick up the phone, and suddenly you become aware it's the hated father-in-law. Now, what actually happened in the instant of the apprehension of that sound, and in, in the Buddhist perspective on the six senses or the five senses, our mind reaches out to apprehend that particular flavor of stimulus. It, it doesn't come to us. There is a state that you can come to where things come into you, but normally the mind reaches out. And you, be, you become aware that it's the hated father-in-law, not only that, well, that will come to the next bit in a second, but what happens in the instant of experiencing the hated father-in-law's voice is that your body literally reorganizes itself internally into hated father-in-law mode. Your entire internal structure and your physical, perhaps you have angry, really angry feelings about this father-in-law as well, um, and your whole body will manifest that. And how long does that take? A split second. It literally happens before you know it. That's how people describe it. But listen to the words. Before I knew it, because knowing is a mental process. This This is really important because these things and all the things that cause people problems in their relationships, they all happen like that. And this is you mentioned before, and I'll just tie that detail up. The more you can be connected to your own internal state, like your heartbeat or your breath or whatever it is that you're using to connect to your physical state, automatically there is a pause built in. You And, and if you're talking about the witnessing or experiencing, not witnessing now, but actually physically experiencing the body organizing itself into hated father-in-law mode, that is a visceral response. It actually happens in your internal organs firstly, and then as your mind reflects on it, the surface musculature. If you watch this stuff closely, that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. And so there was a very famous paper, I think in 1970, written by a guy called Zajonk, Z-A-J-O-N-C from memory, does affect precede cognition? Well, you know, to anyone that does my kind of work or your kind of work, that's such a stupid question. Of course it precedes right. cognition. Right. But that debate went on in psychology and psychiatry for over 20 years. It's one of the mm. most cited papers on in that field. Mm. And that's because, unfortunately, and this will be my recommendation now to anyone who's contemplating an academic career, you must do body work. You must mm. get into your own body. And look... The reason, I mean, there's many reasons why I decided not to go on with an academic career, and I'd love to know your reasons, but here's one thought experiment for people to think of or consider. 
What does the word academic conjure up to you? Well, it's some crusty old guy bent over like this, hunched over with that academic stoop and the head forward posture and looking angry or concerned or something. But anyway, the furthest that you can imagine from being open, happy and relaxed. You know, of course, I'm doing great violence to many academics that I know who are happy, open and relaxed. But you know what I mean? We even talk about the academic stoop. Mm -hmm. That is part of our language. Anyway, yeah, that so, was so. that. That was my definitely my uh, realization at the end of. And I'm still interested in study, but I was studying affect and just. And another way to think about it is how do things affect you? How are you affected by something? Mm -hmm. um, if people are trying to remember the term, you know. Mm. And I was studying some kind of second wave Marxist talking about revolution and that it must happen through the revolution of the individual. And actually, I found that compelling, you know, this this idea of a transformation of consciousness needing to happen, needing to take place for any sort of transformation to take place, whether it's going to be revolutionary or not. Is, you know, I'm less excited about that now than I was at the time. Yes. But, but there were no tools for, OK, so how do I how do I have that happen? How do I transform the way I'm affected by things? Well, this uh, is if, this if that's going to be there. This plays directly into what you and I can talk about, because we absolutely do have tools for that. And I'm sure you do right. have tools for that too. And and so rather than let's put a marker in here, a mental marker mm. that we are going to come back to this point, what are the tools for self transformation, because there are many, and they are yeah. available. Yeah. But let's get back to G Spencer Brown's point just for a second, because this mm. is the, if you like the where what I'm talking about in my Gedanken about the hated father in law, I want to just elaborate on that and then I'll come back to G. Spencer Brown. The hated father-in-law thing, you've just realized, holy shit, it's Boris or whatever his name is. And you you find yourself in, you know, hated Boris mode. But here's the thing. Cognitively, you know that Boris is actually in an insane asylum in Reykjavik, so in Iceland, so 5,000 odd miles away more. And there's no chance of him ever being released. This is the point. And there's actually no, Boris has zero capacity to hurt you. Hmm. Boris has zero capacity to hurt anyone you love. That does not change what happens in the body. So we can have a thought about something and the body will organize itself around that thought. And so we can say in that sense, the perfect example of affect preceding cognition, but it can go the other way, as you know, you can be thinking about something you can get, for example, I don't know, the last polar bears, um, that, that video that was going around the net recently about some starving polar bear on a tiny ice floe um, in the Arctic, starving, you know, for all the reasons that we know about, you could, that would, that could move you massively. So a thought about something that has been triggered by something you've read can cause that same affective response in the body. So it goes both ways. Now let's talk about oh, firstly G. Spencer Brown. Well, his point about things are distinguished on the basis of a perception of difference in value. That's not exactly how he said it, but I'm just unpacking it a bit more. What do I mean by that? Well, you used the example of looking out the window a few minutes ago. And this for me, understanding this clearly and experiencing this clearly was also another, if you like, plank in that that thing that has changed me internally. But 
the structure of your mind, and I'll come back to the inescapability of it in a moment because that's also a profound part of the story, and, and the, it was the it was the inescapability of my own filter that was the thing that shocked me to the core the most deeply. I realised in that moment that I was had with my teacher in the kitchen of my house that there was no way of stepping out of the experience of being me. Mm. This is... There is no, I said, I realize, I said, I said, God, it's everywhere. And he just <laughs> laughed and laughed and laughed. But that's it. It is everywhere. And, mm. and the thing is, at least it seems to me, that so many people who are not happy or who, who find their life unsatisfactory in some aspect, and un, un, unsatisfactory doesn't just mean about being unhappy. It could be being unfulfilled. It could be any of the unwords that we use, any of the negative unwords what are the tools? How, how might we step out of, here's I'm going to use some formal Buddhist terms now, how might we step out of the formal thought stream? And the reason I propose that as a question is, as, as I pointed to before, for most people, their experience of reality is this model in between their ears. And so if that's what we're using, if all of our senses, our sight and our smell and our hearing manifest through that, because on, in the Buddhist, I should mention this too, in the Buddhist way of thinking about these things, um, the mind is the sixth sense. And in fact, that tattoo on my forearm that we've talked about before is the first verse of a very famous sutra, which talks about the mind is chief, meaning among the senses, the mind rules the senses. In fact, this is the filter that we're talking about. Nothing less, nothing more. So let me put it in semi-formal terms. The structure of your own mind, everyone now, the structure of your mind literally constrains how and what you can see, how or what you can hear, how or what you can smell, taste and feel. It literally structures it. So if we talk and you about... Know and my realization at the end of that degree, my philosophy degree, was that just know, even just knowing that isn't enough. You can't just change your mind. <laughs> no. And look, that's such, that is such a good point. Yeah. It's a, here's, here's an analogy from my work. You'll get this. Tom, relax. Right. What's the response? The response is, what the fuck? What do you mean? I am relaxed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's such a silly thing to say. Well, no, it's not a silly thing to say because it can bring a, a moment of awareness about. But the, the fact is you will have an affective response to the direction to relax. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is really, really important. In fact, everything that we say, the Buddhists say that every word that you utter just goes out forever, just never stops. And so we, that, that's one of the, the, the reasons why there's this prescription or the suggestion that one should guard one's speech. You know, they're, not, they're not trivial things. Words and the, or the fingers, like that Zen parable of the finger pointing to the moon, the words are like your finger. The, the words are, it's not that somehow words are lesser in relation to the moon. It is that words themselves are incredibly powerful and sometimes we use them very loosely and that's what the, the, the prescription to guard one's speech is based around. Sometimes we can, and I know that I've done this many times in the past myself, we can hurt the ones we love very much by what we say and and although we we exist in a judeo-christian perspective where one of the the dictums there is um the, the idea of forgiveness 
The fact is, if you're being ruthlessly honest with yourself, you can never take back what you said. Mm. That's the reality of it. Mm. And if you have hurt someone, it's like, uh, well, now I'm going to in, invoke um, Freud's brightest pupil, Reich. It's uh, the, in 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 Japanese. They they talk. They say kizu or sketa, which means you have scratched me. You have a, a scratch has been experienced by me because of you, if I can put it that way. That's that is profound, I think. So we say something, and in in our culture, we just say, oh, "Look, I'm just so I'm so terribly sorry." And the next thing that people will say is, "I didn't mean that." And yet, the energetic experience of the cruel thing that was said is, "Oh, fuck yes, you did. You absolutely meant it." In fact, I'll go further. What you just said a moment ago, you said in such a way that it would have maximum impact, not minimum mm -hmm. impact. Be honest mm -hmm. with yourself. And I've realized that. And it ne it's never truer than when we're angry. Mm -hmm. Never truer. We, and especially if you're intelligent, you'll come up with all sorts of brilliant ways of hurting the people you're among. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that the deep realization that I had done a lot of damage to a lot of people over the years, it, it doesn't matter whether you do good as well. That's, that's actually a separate thing, completely separate thing. But if you have the awareness, if you do realize, as I've realized, that I've done a lot of damage to a lot of people, you really want to change yourself. You want to you want to grasp at whatever might allow change to occur. So to get back to answering that question directly, what tools do we have? I would say for the vast majority of Westerners and the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, the greatest gift you can give to yourself and the technique that allows a stepping out of the thought stream most efficiently is not not a meditation practice but a relaxation practice mm. and the reason i say this, that and the reason that my co-teacher in in these monasteries in asia invited me to teach with him is because i know a lot about that stuff i know a lot about how to have the direct experience of relaxation and why would that be important to a meditation teacher well you can't even begin the work of meditation until you are relaxed internally. You cannot do it. You are fooling yourself. And in fact, here's a classic. We've, I've seen this a thousand, well, not a thousand times. That's an exaggeration. I've seen this a great many times. You'll be sitting in a meditation hall and people have their meditation posture. People can't see this, but I'm, I've got my hand in that sort of classic mudra. Um, and let's say I'm sitting in the Burmese position or have you meditate. And you'll be looking out, the teachers always sit in the front of the hall facing the group that they're working with. And so there'll be 40, 50, or in our case, probably 80 or 90 or 100 people in this hall, and they're all sitting meditating. In brackets, they think. This is what's happening. You'll see it, at least a third of the group at any given time. You'll see them, they'll have their eyes defocused as the prescription is, a soft gaze, and their back is nice and straight and they're doing whatever, they're, they're, they've got their, their primary meditation object in their awareness, etc., etc. And then this is what happens. You'll see the head just go Doop, like this. Doop. And that happens every 15, 20 or 30 seconds throughout the hour sit. Person falls asleep, literally, and wakes back up, falls asleep, wakes back up, falls asleep, wakes back up. And then the teacher will, they have a debriefing in most of these, types of retreats so they'll say so how was that sit fantastic it was so calm um, I was so relaxed I was I was this I was that or something else but the fact is those people were asleep and awake asleep and awake asleep and awake 
Now, is that, am I being critical here? No, because you have to have that experience. That, that experience will inevitably happen to you if you sit for long enough. But here's the thing. It is possible to dream that you're meditating and you're meditating well. And then the bigger question is, well, what about now? Am I dreaming now? Am I dreaming that I'm having a conversation with Thomas by Skype? Am I dreaming that or is that actually happening? And now anyone who's had a lucid dream will tell you it's not possible to distinguish between a really strong, clear dream and this reality. How are you going to do that? Anyway, that's yet another question. So the reason for developing a relaxation practice for me as a teacher is simply as you relax more, inevitably, and this is not something that you can stop happening, inevitably you will become more aware of your internal processes. And so playing back into your example of the, the door-to-door thing that you were doing, and the awareness of what you are projecting and how that constrain the interaction with that person, etc., etc. The more relaxed you are, and it is perfectly possible to be completely relaxed in normal daily life, although most people don't experience their daily life like that, I, I, can, I can say it is possible to do that. Mm. Then what happens is what one of my teachers called the development of a second attention occurs. That is to say, you will be aware of what's happening inside your body all the time. And so if you have a kind of Boris from Reykjavik type experience, um, the instant you become aware that your body is changing itself to the mode that you don't or would prefer not to be in, you take a breath, you let your tummy go completely soft. It only takes a split second to do that. And as soon as you let your tummy go completely soft, can you feel what happens? All of a sudden you're aware of what's happening in your body. You can't avoid that. So if you cognitively and, if I may say, with some uh, discrimination, viveka, and some will, take a breath in and then breathe out to so their voluntary actions and let your tummy go completely soft, all of a sudden you become aware of what's going on in your body. And why is that important? Because... If you're an anger type, and that's how I would describe myself, if I'm asleep or I'm too tired or I'm stressed or whatever, then I'll revert to my old filter, my old way of looking at things. Um, the temptation or the not temptation, that's not the right word because that comes with all sorts of religious things. Let's see, the old habit of stepping onto the anger train will remanifest because it's there, it's, it's you. And this is the thing, the idea of transcending your own core self, that's such an amusing thing to me. We, and I'll tell you another story on that. This actually made that point for me. Actually, I'll come to that. I'll do this story now because it, it, it will make the point in a different way. I was having a, a long late night conversation with one of my teachers in New Mexico. And we were drinking a very expensive brand of cognac. Um, my teacher liked to have a, a cognac with me every now and again, and I liked to have a cognac with him. And so in an unguarded moment, and I'm sure that was part of the whole thing, you know, how can we, how can we bring this wound up tight guy's defences down, best way by far, to give him a few cognacs? That's what I would mm -hmm. say now. So I said in an unguarded moment, oh, God, just looking forward to the time when I'm, I'm not angry all the time. Because I recognised that way back then, this is a real problem for me, and not to mention that for the people around me. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? 
You should really be very guarded around teachers because they're actually paying attention the whole time. They never fall asleep or very rarely fall asleep. And so I said, well, you know, uh, when you get angry, it feels really horrible inside you and it's damaging to other people. And he said, of course, I know all that. He said, but let me tell you, let me tell you about the time when the great beings walked the earth. And so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated already. I have no idea what he's going to talk about. He said... The rishis, so the people who wrote the Vedas, the rishis spoke about a time much earlier than their time. So probably as far as I can tell, maybe 10 or 15,000 years ago, something like that, where the great beings walked the earth who were angry for the space of two or three heartbeats. And immediately this teacher uttered that idea to me that became my life's goal, seriously. Mm. Could I... Because he went on to say, he said, look, there are schools of detachment, as I mentioned before. He said, the last thing you want to do is to detach yourself from your affective states. He said, that way is just another kind of death, right? Dead before you're dead. And he said, there are schools that teach this. And they walk around like zombies, not affected by anything. So you don't get the good, you don't get the highs, and you don't get the lows. You don't actually get to experience what life is as a human being, as a real human being, where he said, you feel everything but you're not controlled by it i mean see the 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 mind has this tendency as as g spencer brown said to divide the universe in half he didn't say this bit but the the division based on value for most people it's the half that i don't want and the half that i do want so i'm going to reject the half that i don't want and people will talk about negative things and or else or whatever their own filter operates however their own filter cuts the world in half there'll be the half that they want and the half that they don't want and so people who say on the enneagram for example who do the point three they are madly attracted to being successful and they avoid being unsuccessful in any possible way that they can so there's success and failure they avoid failure and orient themselves towards success whatever that means although i will say that the dalai lama said something recently which i want to want to share with our listeners which is he said the world doesn't need more successful people Mm. you probably read that same thing it needs more more lovers more poets more more this more that and all the things that we could say are more connected to the heart center but anyway so when this teacher said to me and voiced the goal of being angry for the space of two or three heartbeats i realized and that's and also too i was I had gone over to this particular retreat to pursue or to try and find the state of serenity inside my own body. Now, there was no serenity in my body at at that age in me, none at all. I was just angry. Angry and then not angry. But no serenity. I remember saying to her, what do you mean serenity? It's just like relaxing. What do you mean serenity? And this teacher just said to me, well, that's what you've got to find. He said, I can't help you find that. And that also was another one of those moments. So... I realized that for me personally, and I'm not saying this is going to be for everyone's path at all, but for me personally, to find serenity in my body, I first had to start with something much more ordinary and quotidian, something which is ever, no one regards as special, and that's the state of relaxation. To be able to let myself be deeply relaxed even when fully awake. And... I can say now from my own personal experience that the movement to becoming angry, if you are, if you have part of your awareness centered in your physical body, that capacity to pause 
and let your tummy go soft means, and I, I don't know whether you've had this experience yourself, but if you can let your whole body relax, you can't actually be angry. Now, for someone who is an anger type to say that if they've not had that experience will just seem like the grossest fantasy. What do you mean? That's just impossible. That's a ludicrous idea. I've had people, I've worked with students who've said that to me. And I understand because if someone had said that to me before I'd seen these things myself, I would have reacted in exactly the same way. So relaxation, but for a particular purpose, for the purpose of experiencing what your body, and I would say your heart center, because your heart center is part of the body, it's not part of the mind. This is a very important thing to, to make clear. If we, and so if we're playing back to the very first thing that we spoke about, which is what makes a good human being, and the, the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong in the group that we live in is a fundamental part of that. If you're attached, if you're aware of your heart center or the physical center in your body, the body will always be able to guide you in questions of what's right or what's wrong. Always, at least in my experience. And so that, that alone, it seems to me, would be a reason for pursuing that practice. And then assuming you have developed the capacity to experience relaxation at a deep level, and, and I have to add this because, again, the mind loves to play with these things, what I'm talking about here is not a concept. I'm talking about relaxation as an experience. I mean, I've, I've, I know that when we talk to our students and we suggest that relaxation might be something for them to explore, you can see the mind choose over that idea. It's not the body. That word relaxation does not connect with a physical state at this stage of the person's existence. It's an idea like the general agreement on tariff and trade. It, it, it's just, it's an idea. Ideas don't necessarily connect with the being, the human being at all. In fact, if you don't understand something, here's very, again another limit case to test that, that assertion. If you don't understand what a word means and it has no connection to you, right? The extent to which a word can help you, a bit like the finger pointing to the moon, experience the moon is the extent to which a word or a phrase or a series of ideas conjures up some past experience that the body had that you can relate to, right? And so one of the things I wrote when I was a young philosopher was no description or analysis of the chemistry of an orange will tell you anything about the taste of an orange. If you have not had some kind of citrus fruit equivalent experience, none of that shit means anything, Thomas. And I know you know this, it's so clear, but it's really worth coming back to these really basic ideas, I think, because so many of our misdirections and mistakes come from not understanding the basic building blocks of the thought that we're using all the time and which we just believe to be accurate, you know? Very yeah, it's, it's as if the thoughts are, there's this space between us where the thoughts are operating, the words are operating, the concepts operate, and either they connect for both of us to some experience we've had or they don't. And in the meantime, if they don't, you're just attempting, and this is the struggle as a te teacher, isn't it? Is you're trying to use words or images or stories that help that other person have the experience. Yes. But experience. I mean, we're having, That's having the, the key experience. Thing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And we're having our conceptual ex conversation and we're nodding because we're, the concepts are connecting to yes. experiences, yes. right? So we can, but yeah, that was another, another huge realization for me was 
that thing of uh, seeing things only through your own lens and experiencing things through only through your own lens. Again, it's like sometimes maybe I'm saying a word, I'm sharing a concept that's connecting with an experience of yours that's actually very different to the experience that I had that I'm tr trying to connect you to with the concept. I, maybe it's not maybe it's not landing at all. <laughs> I guarantee you that is accurate. In fact, Olivia and I had this conversation only yesterday, and I'll just tell you a quick story. We we are we reflect each other to each other all the time. We are she's she is my most important spiritual teacher, and, and in fact in fact good relationships, any kind of relationship actually, if you pay attention, can be the perfect teacher for each of us. Now, something happened and I interpreted the something that happened to mean as something else. And she, when she told me what her experience was, and it was something utterly trivial, I can't, it's so trivial, I can't remember what it was, but she told me um, a series of mental steps that she went through, five or six steps to get to a particular position, which actually ended up at a completely different position to the position that I had experienced, literally in a 10-second conversation. This is how powerful and how dangerous potentially these things are. But I realised as soon as she recounted to me the steps that she went through, I thought, that's completely plausible. I understand that completely. And what's more, totally consistent with what actually I recall happened. So there you go. There's two people who live together, right? We're working, living together. And in the space of 10 seconds, you can completely misunderstand the intentions and the reasonings of the other person in 10 seconds. It's, it's volatile stuff. And this really, we, have, we, re, we really have to pay attention. And the, and the whole dictum, in, you hear people saying all the, all the time these days, oh, you, just, you have to be present. Yes, you, well, I mean, that's a great piece of advice. How do you stay present? How? How does that... So this is another question about what tools we can use. And again, I'd say, well, let me run an idea by you and please tell me whether you think this is completely ludicrous or not. But the, the reason I have focused so much in my work on internal states, and that's both true in my meditation practice. My meditation, we'll talk about that another time. It's a more samatha type of practice, not a vipassana type of practice, which is the most popular form of meditation here in the West. But becoming aware of internal states, is the reason is this. I'm just struggling to, to put this into words. I, I, I put, I'm going to put it just boldly and simply. The body never lies. That's what I'm going to say. And, and of course, that doesn't actually mean a great deal. So let me just elaborate on that. Your mind is lying to you all the time. And by that, I don't mean that to denigrate the operations of the mind. If, if someone is relaxed and, and their mind is working well, then the mind has immense creative potential as well. Of course, that's true. When I say your mind is lying to you, here's a classic one that we do in workshops all the time. We'll say to everyone, turn your head slowly as far as you can to the left like this. And everyone will come to a stop. And then I'll say in the, to the group, I'll say, so do you feel like you've come to the end of your range of movement? Of course, you can see people nodding or raising their eyebrows up and down because that's exactly what's happened. They come to the end of their range of movement. And I say, take in a breath. And as you breathe out, turn your head further. And in every case, on a workshop, this whole room full of people, everyone turns their head further. Mm. And so I say, and then we do it again. It goes 
further a third time. So we come back to the, the, the middle and, we, and then I say this, I say, okay, so you've just seen an example where your own perception of the end of the range of movement clearly wasn't accurate. Now, with that idea in mind, see what happens when you turn your head to the right. Guess what happens? You come to the end of the range of movement, and when you then tell the class to take in a breath and breathe out and turn the head further, the head goes further. Mm. And that's, so the number of things here, the body rules, firstly. And secondly, you can't make yourself flexible by just thinking, yes, I'm going to go past this point in the range of movement that I can't go past. I mean, if that was true, both you and I would have been perfectly flexible a long, long, long time ago, right? It doesn't happen like that. It's the... What's the word I'm looking for? It is the separation. That's not quite the right word I'm looking for. But it's the, the space that the body lives in and the disjunct of the space the mind lives in where human beings' problems begin. Mm. Now, let, let me elaborate on that too. The root of suffering, according there's many theories on this, or but the Buddha spoke of a particular, a particular one. He made the claim at some point in some sutta that the majority of people, they when they're in their heads, or well, I'll take a step back. That's not his his work. Most of us are interacting with a model of reality, as I said, but there's there's more to it than that. The model is usually fixated on the past or the future. So the model will be talking about if it's fixated on the past, people will be regretting something that's happened in the past or talking about the hated father-in-law example, some terrible thing that the hated father-in-law did in the past, nonetheless it brought into the present by the mind and the body because memories live in the body as well as the mind, as you know. Um, and so if if that effect is too strong, then we can say that some people are being controlled in the present moment by their constant re-recollection of things in the past, the hurts that were associated with that, or or the regrets in the case of, say, someone who I used to be really flexible and now I'm not flexible, I'm miserable all the time because I used to be flexible, like that. Or dreaming about a future which never actually comes, wanting an alternative to what's actually happening right now, and that's that mental division, the half of the universe that I want, the half that I don't want. That division and that reality is in the continuously unfolding present only. It doesn't exist in the past and it doesn't exist in the future. And that's the whole basis of Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, which I recommend is a very good book. So what's the connection to the body? Well, the body, the body its language is not words. The language of the body is sensations, for which we have an extremely poor vocabulary. It's impossible, virtually impossible, to describe physical sensations with words. You, I know you've, you're familiar with this idea because you've had difficulties as a teacher yourself trying to explain exactly what it is that you're feeling when you say, well, like when you're trying to teach someone how to do a muscle up, for example. The capacity to do a muscle-up, just like the capacity to do a chin-up, is when you put your hands on the bar and the body knows it can do X or Y. The body knows. It's yeah, we have this experience all the time. Of, it's a feeling. It's feeling, not an yeah. idea. That's the point. You're giving a cue. Oh, open your shoulders. Open your shoulders. About two years later, hey, I think I opened my shoulders today. 
I, I real I discovered something. I needed to open my shoulders, and you, you know, and you go, yeah, that's right, head slap. And yeah. Olivia says this all the time. She said she'll say something like, "I'll say something on a workshop," or she'll say something on a workshop, and I'll say to her, "But darling, I've heard you say that to this person at least five times on this workshop already." That but you know, and as teachers, we have to we just have to laugh about that, and you certainly can't be critical of a student for that. But there's well, something else to think about too. This is really important. Just on a teaching note, so we're making a bit of a segue here, but as a teacher, you can never be irritated or annoyed with your students because they did not understand your direction. Because half the time, if you're saying anything that's even vaguely interesting, they're actually reflecting on something you said a minute or two ago, and they don't... The fact is, with the concentration on that series of ideas you know, percolating around, the conscious or the awareness can't actually hear what you're saying. And we've, and we've demonstrated this to each other so many times on, on workshops. So don't be annoyed. Just repeat. Just repeat. And, and also, remember, it's, it's also not fair because everything you're teaching is an experience you've had. Of course. <laughs> no, so you're already in the position of... And there's that story. And um, I did one one semester on Buddhist philosophy. So I, I'm an expert. You, oh, you're um, a man. I'm, I bow down <laughs> before you. <laughs> but there's that story of... Uh, and I'm sure you're more familiar with it than I am. Of the raft, you just, you take the raft across the river, right from the sh from the banks of yeah. ignorance to the shores of enlightenment, yeah, and then sure. you're done with the you're done with the raft. Um, again, the concept is there, trying to connect an experience you've had as the teacher to an experience you'd like for the student to have. Um, and I, you're in a you're in an unfair position because you never the, you never teach something you don't understand. Of course, and look, I've got a better example, if I may say, than that raft example. Here's a better example, and this is how this is how we can argue for the desirability of of certain processes and certain practices because we treat them as scaffolding. I mean, Alan Watts wrote a book, "Be Here Now." Now, and it's a very famous book. If you could be here now, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Be here now. Okay, boom, done. Work's done. I'm here now. I'm still here now. I'm still here now. I'm fully present. I'm always fully present. That's not what happens. So what we do in terms of trying to take someone or ourselves as well from a state of lesser awareness or lesser presence to greater awareness, greater presence, is we use techniques that I'm going to refer to from now on as scaffolding. When you're trying to build a building, you can't build it without scaffolding. Scaffolding are the tools and techniques that we need to put up and then eventually let go of. That's also important once the structure is complete and we can then do other activities within that structure. Um, that's my answer to to someone who says, well, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? And that's as true in your physical unpracticed um, world as it is in the world of meditation or any other world we're talking about. The Tibetans divide their practices into milk, blood and bone practices. Um, milk and blood practices are practices that have a certain duration, a certain currency, and then they're put aside once things are real once particular things are realized and then other tools are picked up but there are some practices and i would call relaxation one of those fundamental practices um, which are bone practices they do not change from a beginner attempting to grapple with these things to an expert who is simply re-experiencing those things they don't change and so talking now about a meditation practice 
there is something, there's a technique that I have found extremely helpful to, to know whether or not I'm falling asleep while I'm meditating or whether I'm actually being present. And that is a very old practice, which is a mainstay of Zen practice, which is breath counting. Breath counting is a, a, a terribly, terribly salutary experience, I'm afraid, because let's say you start your breath counting, and I should just describe to the audience what breath counting is. You take a breath in, and as you breathe out, you count internally one, and you repeat. Now, the first time, normally when we're teaching, and I am going to do some, I think we'd had a little conversation about this, I am putting together a little kind of cheat sheet or cliff notes or show notes for how to begin meditation, because it seems those instructions, they're not available anywhere. It, well, unless you actually go on a retreat, and lots of people can't go on retreats for lots of different reasons, so I'm going to put together a, a sort of a... a a, a simple start here, do this, do something else, um, what did you experience kind of thing, and then go on from there. But one, here's a thought experiment, we won't actually do this together because it would be most boring listening, but you, you say that you don't give the person any instructions other than just become aware of the movements in the body that we call breathing. So not even become aware of your breathing because that's a concept and that that's i have learned that you cannot use conceptual language in these things you have to connect every instruction to a direct experience so if i say to you for example take a breath in feel all the movements in the body that we call breathing that's immediate physical experience right and then the next direction is just simplicity itself just gently hold your awareness on those sensations and then you give the class a minute or two and then you and you've already given the instruction of increment the count by one each time you breathe out. What number did you get to? We'll say to the class, and no one gets beyond two or three before some thought comes into their mind. And that's a bit of the instruction I missed out on. You say stop the count and go back to zero as soon as a thought appears in your mind. So I'll, I won't make that mistake when I actually do the recording. It'll be it'll be there. And so what happens is. You breathe in, you're aware, you're connecting to those movements, you feel the chest inflating or expanding or however you describe it, or the tummy falling or the, the chest or the tummy rising or going out to the front, however you describe those things to yourself, you feel that coming in. And then out. And then a little pesky thought will come along, something. You're thinking to yourself, I must remember to pick up those zucchini for dinner, let's say. That's, that's the thought form. Oh shit, I just had a thought. Okay, I'll go back to one or zero because start counting one again. And so the first instruction set is simply, the reason for it is simply to see how the thoughts come into the mind. Now the Tibetans say we create 60 new thoughts a second. That's what experienced meditators claim they see. Anyway, so there's, there's still a lot of work to be done, obviously, but the point is, if you do decide to increment or decrement the count back to zero, when you a thought comes into your mind, you will never get past one or two. So that's, that's step one in the practice, is simply to be aware of that process. And the second instruction is simply to do exactly the same thing, to become aware of the movements in the body, and to increment the count and so on. But when a thought comes into the mind, this time, let it float through 
and keep your awareness on your breathing. And that, and that also then later allows the meditation teacher to talk about the primary object. The primary object in this exercise is to hold your awareness. And notice I always say hold your awareness gently on the meditation object, which are the movements or the breathing, or it can be something as, as fine as the sensation of the air at your nostrils. And it will, it'll depend on the student and you know, phase of the moon and who knows what else, which direction is given to the student. But one of those things will be a useful meditation object because you carry it with you everywhere, your body, I mean, and you can immediately bring your awareness back to that sensation easily. And so for, for, for a beginning meditation student, it's a very good meditation object, I think. And so so anyway, think... the, the, the point about mentioning all of this and talking about beginning meditation instructions is just this. If you hold your awareness, at least part of your awareness, on the physical sensations of the body as they manifest, and, as, and you'll see in time that they manifest and then they fall away, manifest and fall away, and the sensations in the body are never static, that they are constantly changing, and that's a fundamental part of the Buddha's teaching as well, of course, and it's a very useful device to see that through. But the point is this, as this is the critical point as you are aware of those sensations you are not in the past and you're not in the future you are only in the continually unfolding present which in the beginning in your practice is an extremely narrow window because we the mind jumps into the future or back into the past oh i'm meditating very well now that's a thought but go back to start so on that sort of thing. The thoughts happen so quickly. And and as I mentioned, we're not that the, the instruction in our system is never to try to stop thinking. Uh, you'll break your mind. That's one of the one of the, the, the dictums that, that was I was given when I was a beginning Zen student. Don't try to stop your mind, you'll just break it. Rather, to become aware, and this I'm going to talk about something which is a tiny bit esoteric now, but we were talking about this before. What we pointed to this before what is the space from where can one's the structure of one's mind be seen or experienced what is that vantage point is this another bit of scaffolding is it a, a, a separate place somehow is it spatially and temporally different to the experience of thinking no it is simply a larger space within which thoughts are seen as in the beginning at least as somehow not the space themselves, but something that happens in the space. That's that's as far as I would want to put some kind of verbal description on it. But the, the fundamental thing here, and this is the thing that I've been able to bring into the Buddhist teaching in Asia, is the space is far more likely to open up if you're deeply relaxed internally. It will not open up if you're busy thinking. It simply can't because the awareness is then tied into the thought stream. And so the only alternative to the thought stream that we have as human beings, although maybe Elon Musk will say, no, we'll be able to see it clearly from the moon or from Mars or wherever, but I don't think that's true either. The only vantage point that we have is from our physical selves, our physical body, if I can put it that way. Now, I'm not arguing that the space that I'm talking about is some kind of physical space in which the brain's activity is seen. I'm not talking about that kind of reductionist perspective at all, but rather, and I don't want to put too many um, labels on it because it 
very likely that the next person who listens to these suggestions will do the practices and find that their experience is quite different and think that they've done something wrong. No, you don't know, you can't predict, and you don't know what that experience is going to be. If I just point vaguely, sort of like, sort of like this, it is that some kind, and even the word space might not be right, some kind of awareness manifests that within which you see thoughts. I remember Amatima, I didn't, I wasn't witness to this, but a famous a teacher I work with was, he said, she said, oh, my children, she said in that lovely way she has of speaking, you're like the naughty fish dancing around on the surface of the ocean saying, I am the ocean, I am the ocean. That's a lovely story, I think. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I like about that story the most is that not bad fish or fish that have lost their way or any of those kinds of negative things that we have so hardwired in our culture when we're trying to correct someone. No, a naughty fish. <laughs> it's just a fun, yeah. a fun thing, you know, a naughty fish. <laughs> so when you actually have that experience of seeing your thoughts or being able to, whatever the word is, I, I say seeing, maybe feeling is part of it too, because there's definitely a physical sensation associated with thinking, although it's so subtle that I think for a lot of people that, that that's not a strong connection. Seeing is probably the strongest. What happened to me personally to see my own thoughts in that way? Well, the surprising thing was, firstly, I just laughed. I mean, it was so obvious that this thought stream is it's the same thought stream that I had the last time I was sitting meditating and the same thought stream. It has the same flavor, the same recurring themes in it, the same this, the same that. And you know what? Firstly, it's just not interesting. That was, that was the first realization. It's not interesting. And I can put that weight down. I think I mentioned this to you once before, but when you become aware, oh my God, there's a lot more to this experience of being alive than just what I'm thinking. When you actually know that to be true, when you experience that to be true, there's an immense weight. I don't have to be this. I don't have to do that. In fact, you don't have to be or do anything. And when you know that, then again, it's just like not falling into the anger pattern. You have a choice. And if I, if, if there's anything to get out of what I'm talking about, it is to create the space inside yourself to have the choice about how to react. Because the majority, when we see anyone behaving angrily or falling back into depression or whatever the problem is, whatever the flavor of their own unsatisfactoriness is, firstly, it's a pattern that has been repeated 10,000 times before and you're an expert in it. And so there's a familiarity to it. There is an ease of bringing it back and re-experiencing it. Um, when you see that, when you have this larger space, you can make a choice. You say to yourself something like, oh, I know where that's going, or I know how this ends. That's probably a better one in my case. God, I know how, I know how this is going to go. Do I want that this time? No. And again, there's nothing judgmental about it. it. There's a lightness to it, I found, which was completely surprising to me because I was a very serious person. I mean, God, you wouldn't have liked me 20 years ago, Thomas, I tell you. I was just a terrible human being. Um, so serious all the time. That's another thing. So what, but that's what I've found is that, is that everything seems funny. And I don't mean you're laughing at other people or at 
things. It's just that everything seems funny, if, if I can put it that way. And again, the ego is not present. When you're having a real belly laugh, I'm not talking about a snide laugh where you're you know, enjoying someone else's misfortune or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. But when you have a real laugh, the ego is not operating in that moment. The ego can't actually operate in that moment, which is why we enjoy humor so much. One of the reasons anyway, because again, it gives us a rest from ourselves. And look, on the, on the much more mundane note, and then I'm, I'm going to stop talking, the, the reason for developing a relaxation habit and then possibly helping or get taking that into a meditation, a formal, more formal meditation practice, the best reason to develop a, a relaxation practice, in my view, is actually so that the quality of your sleep is enhanced. We spend a third of our lives sleeping, and most people's relationship with sleep these days is not a good one. In fact... I'm going to write about this and we'll do blog posts and so on on this as well, but not being able to sleep is probably the most common thing that people mention when you say, so, Tom, how are you? They say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm not saying you, I'm talking about the archetypal Tom. But if you then ask, so how are you sleeping? Well, I usually wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning and I'm thinking about this or that or something else. That's what I'm talking about. If the mind is active when you go to sleep, and this was my real reason in the in the beginning for learning self-hypnosis, which is what led to my relaxation practice, uh, it, the biggest difference for me and the most important, profound difference for me was it changed my relationship to sleep forever, mm-hmm. completely. It doesn't matter for me now if I don't sleep well in the way that people think about well i went i i became unconscious at nine o'clock and i became conscious at six o'clock so i must have had a good night's sleep you know what i mean no in fact there are there are nights when i am at least half awake most of the night but it's a completely relaxing experience i'm simply aware of what's going on around me and then when it gets light enough i get my body out of my sleeping bag so say you know what i mean it, the, the, the 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 key idea to get across here and I'm not perhaps putting it as as eloquently as I could is when you disconnect yourself from the immediacy and I've just realized my battery's about to run out so I'll just grab that power cord just don't go away and I'll take this with me my Mac is telling me that it needs some food so I will plug it back in so that we don't get cut off now, where were we? When you realise, I was about to say something semi-profound. Just put it on the other side. Remind me what I was talking about, Tom, before I was so rudely interrupted by the Mac operating system. You just finished talking about sleep. Awareness during sleep. Ah, yes. And quality of sleep. I'm not sure what you're about to say. Oh, man, I'm disappointed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't paying. I wasn't paying attention. Yes, you were, because you, you absolutely had no idea where I was going with that. So, no. When this is this is how I would describe it in another context, but it will work okay here. And I have mentioned this, but I'm just going to tie it up to sleeping. When you realise that you're not actually your thoughts, when you absolutely know that to be true. It doesn't mean that your mind stops working or that you can't think or that you can't write or anything. In fact, all of those things work better. That's that's a fact, I'll tell you that. But when you realise that 
there there is a, an immense freedom is experienced and so getting back to the sleep thing you you're awake and you're aware i see that i've got a bright light in the background i'll just change come over to here is that better yeah not the best room for for this kind of thing but when you're aware that you are not your thoughts and what's more what you're thinking about something is not necessarily good or bad or that that in fact then drives the experience you are actually freed from your thought processes in a way that the average person has not experienced yet and don't don't you think that starting with awareness of the body is a good almost like an access point there like one of the and we've mentioned the word tools a few times, one of the actual tools that I sometimes encourage students to use, and it's because it worked for me, was just, you know, many people are in this in this habit of lifting the shoulders, right? There's tension in the, it's a protective, it's a protective mode. Yep. And in particular, it's cold now in Canberra, so it's happening even more. I say just every time you wash your hands, and everyone's doing that all the time now, which is great because of the COVID stuff, every time you wash your hands, just check what your shoulders are doing. And they start, oh, okay, I can relax them down. Okay, I can relax them down. And I think it's, uh, you mentioned the three heartbeats of anger, right? That your anger lasts only three heartbeats. That the cultivation of awareness can be, it starts with a full day of unawareness uh, with five moments of interspersed awareness of whatever. It doesn't have to be awareness of anything in particular. Mm -hmm. And those might be the five moments of awareness that the shoulders were elevated and that you could relax them which is two it's two things right you notice something and you decide to change it which you're talking about the choice you have the choice that, that is the development of a new habit that will change your life as simple as that it is isn't it yeah and and, and look i know there's a that it's a kind of a hackneyed saying now but the chinese um or it's a Taoist saying a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step the word that you used a moment ago is the perfect way to describe this access point. That is precisely what it is. If you don't have an access point, no scaffolding, forget about building a building. You don't even know where to put it. You don't even know what the building's going to look like. Mm. So we, we start. When people get interested in these things, it's like everything else Western. They want to be successful at it. They want to be good at it. No. In fact, and this is, this is actually what's wrong with our education system, we actually want to be bad at it. We want to fail at it, but aware of those mm. things because the fact is, and no, well, people who are educated really don't like this idea very much. You don't ever learn from positive feedback. You only learn from negative feedback. You don't learn anything. When someone writes to you after a workshop or a course that you've done and says, look, that was absolutely fantastic, thanks very much, you don't learn anything from that. Mm. If someone says, look, I hope you don't mind me suggesting this to you, but if you did this and didn't do that and something else happened, this would allow you X or Y, fuck, you think, okay. I can do something with that. And so our education system only rewards people being successful, which means basically regurgitating whatever the professor or the teacher has taught to them, or there are the prescribed texts which you need to know and so on and so forth. But actually far, far better is to make a mistake and learn from that. And I've been learning how to work with my hands, as in I've been restoring a boat. And so there are 10,000 skills that I didn't have which you need to have which I've had to teach myself. And the beautiful thing about working with your hands is you can see immediately whether or not mm -hmm. the idea that you had about what is going to happen actually happened. Mm. And usually it didn't because you simply weren't 
skilled enough using the tool to make it happen. That's immediate feedback. And it's negative feedback, but which in the big picture is wholly positive. Mm. So getting back to what you were talking about, the body, if you are, if you become incrementally aware of what's happening in your body, you will automatically have an access point. It will and come don't you, th- do you think, because my experience is been and that, that that becomes where the majority of time is unawareness or identification with thoughts, just absorption and whatever's happening, whether it's thinking or, or, or not. Um, absorption might not be the might not be the right word because perhaps that's actually what we're searching for right is that that would be a way to describe the awareness but mm-hmm. um interspersed moments of awareness of how the body's feeling how this part of the body's feeling it's like a scale the scale starts with just moments and then becomes more and more it becomes smaller and smaller so the awareness is awareness of more and more smaller and smaller m- feelings of tension in the body and then also faster and faster you know so like you mentioned the shrinking of the scale from the word oh i lo- noticed the word you're looking for is uh, discrimination uh-huh. by that i mean we there is clarity there's some sort of awareness and then that is dis- discriminated or distinguished into finer and finer things yeah now look, right. that's not that's not the sole description of the process because there are some schools of meditation that practice open awareness where we're actually trying to hold as big a space that we're aware of as possible. So we I I personally need to be very careful about saying it should be done like this or it should be done like that. The 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 expression you used, access point, is a is a beautiful one and, and that's probably what I would like to end what we're talking today on because as something as simple as becoming aware of, of, of am I holding my shoulders up or not, that, that doesn't sound like a particularly major thing, but it's the first step. It is the starting of the scaffolding, or as you said, the access point, and the access point leads to a truly limitless space in time. And so it might seem... And I've had people say, oh, look, no, I, I, I want to work on something more complicated than that. Because the, this is what the mind wants to do. We are so conditioned in our culture to be successful and to do things well, which plays into what I was just talking about a second ago. No, we're going to give you a small exercise to show you what the experience is like and what comes along to change that experience. Not that the changing experience itself is bad, but rather, what is the process? What is your awareness of the process that you're in? And in the beginning, it's not clear. But as you practice more, and this is the, the, the big point that I want to make, relaxation and awareness both are simply new habits. They can be acquired. Actually, we're all aware all the time. It's actually not that. It's the capacity to hold your awareness on something or to direct your awareness. The fact that we're talking to each other, we're both aware, right? So it's more than that. It's something, it's developing the capacity. Well, concentration is one of the words that's used in in Buddhist teaching. But concentration to me, as a Westerner, implies a kind of screwing down of the focus. But it's not that. It would a better expression would be a completely relaxed or a gentle concentration. I like the word gentle because it's soft. 
So when we were talking before about letting the thoughts, we're not pushing the thoughts out of our awareness. That's an action and the ego's involved there right away. And then straight away, there's the good me or the bad me. Oh, look, I was able to push the thoughts out of the way. Oh, the bad me, I wasn't able to push the thoughts out of the way. That's a dead end. Not that. Rather, gently letting the thoughts pass through, like watching clouds go across the sky. There's no good or bad about that. It's simply becoming aware of the process. And by that, I mean, if you do watch your thoughts for long enough, you will see the same thoughts coming again and again and again. And that's, that's a great realization. Just that is a great realization. Mm-hmm. They're not real. Yeah. They seem to be real. And certainly if you get stuck into them and get involved with them and then started creating new things on the back of those thoughts, you, in fact, you'll defend them as real. So it's all, yeah, keep an awareness in the tummy. That's a, that's a short story. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good trick, right? Hopefully you move from being, oh, I'm noticing tension, say, in the shoulders or in the tummy once a day to twice a day to three times a day to very, very, very frequently. And then the awareness is there kind of diffused throughout the body and, and the mind the whole time. Yes. And again, the thoughts, is just, I like the naughty, naughty you know, fish. Oh, you know, maybe yeah. it's every every couple of minutes. Ah, oh, no, I'm thinking, thinking through that again. Yeah. And, and sometimes you might choose to think the thought through, right, as well. Like, let me... Let me finish this thought. <laughs> that is a conscious choice. Right. That's different. So really what we're talking about, when we talk about thinking, what we're really talking about when we're talking about thinking in a negative way is, let me refine it, it is obsessive thinking. It is mm-hmm. thinking that you can't put down or thinking that wakes you up at 3 o'clock in the morning every day without fail. You have no control over your mind. And when I say control, again, I'm not talking about screw it down tight control. I'm talking about the fact is you have no tools. You have never been taught anything about how to exert some control over this unruly beast who's yeah. only doing what it's designed to do. That's the thing. Yeah. There's, it's yeah. naughty fish. It's just not bad fish. It's, it's really a profoundly important idea. And it really doesn't. It, it defuses that because because as a culture we are immensely critical of other people and as individuals we are immensely self-critical i know i was and you could argue i should have been much more critical of myself because you are bad you are you are not a good person so anyway so look develop a relaxation habit and i guess we can we can we can link to some of the things on our site because we've got I've got the recordings of probably 150 different relaxation exercises that I've taught in monasteries in Asia, and you can sometimes hear the the monkeys in the background um, mm. in the forest because the, these monasteries are all built in forests. Uh, that's one place to start, but also to the other thing, and as we're both body workers, it's worth mentioning this. The fact is, you can do all of your body work with that level of awareness too. That's a big, big, a big important thing. And so I teach all the body work on, the, on meditation retreats that I co-present or present. And the reason, and what I do is I, I present what look like ordinary stretching exercises, but, but I'm always pointing my students to, now just watch what's going on in your mind as you bend forward to try and put your face on your shins. Let's say you're doing a pike or something. Can you feel the resistance in your body? And can you, are you aware of 
your own emotional response to that resistance. The experience of resistance is not just experience as resistance, but it's, holy shit, I wish I was a bit more flexible today because I've got an audience around when I want to look flexible today. That's where the unsatisfactoriness pops up. It is immediate judgment. It's a, it, the filter straight away has separated the experience into the half that you want and the half that you don't want. And all the other things we've spoken about indirectly today can be experienced in that moment. And then the, the deeper one is, am I experiencing aversion, which is the most common response to a strong physical sensation? Am I experiencing attraction? Or is it neutral? So those three things that you mentioned before, they are in fact straight out of one of the most famous sutras. Am I attracted to? Am I repelled from? Or am I neither attracted nor repelled? As soon as you start looking at your physical work that way, that also changes the experience of that. It's remarkable. I had an experience with, and, and this is when I first came across your, started making use of some of your, those relaxation scripts actually, kit, which is my story I've told a few times before with chronic pain, I had, which started with injury and often, often it does, right? I had a um, spondylolisthesis, which, which you would know what that is, but um, for people listening, one vertebra slips forward of the other, mm-hmm. and there were two, uh, two fractures associated with that for me and then labral tears in the same in the hip on one side and a bone spare in that hip and all these diagnoses didn't do much for my uh, experience but mm. <laughs> of pain um, but I remember sitting in a in the physio's office one one day and I'd gone through all these kind of conventional therapeutic approaches and he said well are you in we're talking about chronic pains like it's every time I I just feel like I'm in pain all the time. And I didn't know I was in chronic pain at the time. It was a seven-year span on reflection, but it was just being. And uh, he said, well, can, are you in pain now? And then I tried to feel, put my mind's eye into my hip. And I said, well, yes, yes, I'm in pain. But then I reflected after. I think the moment before he asked, I wasn't, exactly. I wasn't in pain. Exactly. It, it, was, it was that the sensation of my right hip had become a sensation of pain the two things had become coupled together and so i used started using your script and other tool your scripts and other tools to try to have the experience of feeling my hip without feeling pain and i used my left hip this is my trick this, mm. well focus your attention on the left hip because because otherwise you feel for you feel for the injury or where you normally feel the pain and you get that aversion as well right pain leads to tension so i can feel pain and you try to protect you contract it's a habit yes it becomes a habit and and what do we know about habit the most important thing to know about habits is the more often it's repeated the more deeply it's grooved the more Mm. easily it's brought back the more easily it's re-experienced right and isn't it isn't it fascinating how these things are connected I, i just decided i'll stop checking as often how my hip feels and then instead I'll use, I'll check during the relaxation practice and check and try to couple the feeling of right hip to the feeling of relaxation rather than to the, because you have to, this is the other thing we know about habits is they need to be replaced by other habits. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and so, and so could I just interrupt there and say, um, you're at, that's absolutely, it's, it's really important to make this point is that relaxation and also gathering your awareness and holding your awareness on one thing or something else they are simply habits. Mm. And the mm. habit of being relaxed is just not the habit of most 
modern Western people. There's all sorts of reasons for it, evolutionary and other reasons for it. But if you identify another state as being something you would like to feel or achieve, you can do that. Now, in spiritual work, they talk about if you want to change your habits, you need to do the new habit every day for a month. And then they always pause and they say, but if you're really serious about it, you do it every day for three months. Mm. Now, that, that, that does seem there is, a, there is something in this. I don't know what it is exactly, and it doesn't bear analysing too deeply, I don't think. But the fact is, the, the brute fact, if I can put it that way, is if someone does practice a new habit every day, even if it's only for a moment or two, for three months, they have fundamentally changed themselves at the end of that three months. Mm-hmm. That's the, the big take home there. Mm-hmm. And so we often have people ask us, are you in your field and my and me and mine? Here's a classic one. Okay, so I can't touch my toes, but how long would it take me to get front splits? You know, this is a, a, a serious question. Well, mock serious. And you have the same thing. I'm just starting gym training. I'm about 30 kilograms overweight, um, but I, I, I want to know how long it'll take me to do a muscle up. That's a classic one. This, really what that points to is the shape of the mind. That's what it points to more strongly than anything else. Very few people are inclined to just try something, feel what is happening, feel how they can change it or improve it or make it feel easier or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Or how can I exert more force in this pull-up exercise? How can I do that? No mind activity will ever help you with that. Can you feel the muscles that you're using to do this particular job? Are you loose enough to get into the fundamental position, which of course is one of the early ways, early conversations that we had? Anyway, I think we're on the same page here. Well, and the terrible thing, it actually connects with what we spoke about in the very beginning is that if the conscious, conscious, what we can pay conscious awareness to is relatively small, it's a small part of our experience or the conscious mind is that maybe that's a 1% slice of our entire experience. Like we said, you see the thing and then in that moment you've already made a decision mm. of some sort and your mm. body's shaped itself into a certain position mm. and then and then perhaps a flow of thoughts um, arises. Then that's what we should be. If we're interested in self-transformation, then it's habit. I mean, it's really habit development, isn't it? It's it's cultivating your un, otherwise unconscious, you're bringing awareness to otherwise unconscious Yes. traits or tendencies and, patterns and trying to shape them in a positive and then you and then you're just in the habit of paying attention to that thing and you don't need to continue practicing whatever the tool you don't the tool's done with the raft can be, can be tossed away right exactly um but but it's just it's hard isn't it because the conscious slice that one percent slice of us convinces it is convinced that it's a hundred percent um, uh, but and, it can't, and, it can't and, be changed on its own. And it's very convincing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah. look, that look. That's probably a good point to stop on for today. I think, Tom. Mm. And I would, I'd be very. Well, I, I did, in fact, do most of the talking today. Forgive me for that. <laughs> but, but what would be interesting, and we'll put this on our own channel as well. But if people have any specific questions 
Mm. Um, and we'll, as I said, we'll write some show notes about you know, where to get some relaxation practices from and that kind of thing. And I am going to write that, you know, how to start, how to act. I've, written, I've done that video, how to sit for meditation. That's been out for a long time, but not what you're actually supposed to be doing. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll make some notes on that as well. And we'll link, we'll link up on that. But if I, a, a teacher that I work with once said, and he was quoting his own teacher here. He said, you think you're enlightened? Go and stay a week with your family. Mm. Now, that provoked a thought to me. I thought there could be a discussion, for example, well, how, what, how do, supposing you, you find your mother really annoying or your father really annoying or he's on you about this or that and the other, and that theme has not changed since you were a kid, whatever it is, how, what are, here's a word that we haven't used so far today, and this is a term in spiritual work, very important, we can explore this next time, but what are the skillful means for not changing that as in I'm going to change that person, but what, to the person who's waking up, what ideas or attitudes or tools can I bring to this experience that will help it to be either smoother or a better experience for both parties concerned, or... Again, I don't want to point to the outcome, but mm. what what are the to use your expression? I'm going to I'm stealing this by the way, and just letting you know access points. What are the access points for this? Well, there are. If you think about it straight away, access points. It's a very good expression. Mm. There will there will be access points. Mm. And how how do we do that without becoming yes. detached exactly. as well? Exactly. Because that I've, I've gone through that experience. Oh, now I now I'm just not feeling. I'm not affected by anything. And that seems seems nice until you start being affected by things positively and then you realize perhaps it wasn't. That's right. Or you're aloof. And actually, I would like to, maybe next time we can talk about the cat, the cat worship. Uh, I'd like to take you up on that because, sure. um, you know, that I, I do think there's something there that the dog has, that engagement. Yes. That, that, that the cat could benefit from as well. Oh, completely, completely. Yeah, no. Whenever Just we talk... I'm, you know, Whenever we talk about those kinds of things, as they're only ever thought experiments, and we, for example, our own the cat that who passed last year, um, was an immensely affectionate animal, um, and and was not like that archetypal cat I I keep talking about, the one who you know if if you're in favour you might get an ear twitch, you know, where a dog be having a different way. Anyway, look, we we will talk about that. So look, why don't we why don't we wrap it up for here today, and I'll okay. make sure that I press the right buttons to save this, otherwise it's been a very pleasant conversation yeah um, thank but you. what i was thinking of i'd be very happy if our audience gave us specific things to engage with so maybe some of the stuff that i talked about today might seem a bit airy fairy it's not airy fairy and, and as you know yourself from your own personal experience but it might seem that way to someone who hasn't had some of the experiences that you've had or i've had so I'd be very happy to re-engage with any of these things anytime because as a teacher, and I'm pretty sure you'll, you feel the same way about this, all we ever want as teachers is to be useful to other people. That's all. I'm not trying to tell people how to think or that they need to chant these particular chants or you know, any of that stuff that we see so often in this other world. Rather, just to be useful to other people so that they... So that in order to, or to provide, if you like, the, the tools or the scaffolding or have whatever language you're going to use for that, so that your own life becomes a bit easier, a bit more comfortable, uh, a bit more rewarding for you. Let, let's just make that modest offer. Nothing, yeah, I think that, nothing I, special. 
I think that would be useful. My impression is that you and I could talk for a very long time about very many things and Good. that having some sort of uh, structure or some, someone else can choose which rabbit holes we go down. <laughs> and, and I will say that, that I talked about some, some things today that I've never spoken about before on podcast. So I know there is some new material there as well. But this is something else that we, we need to reflect on. The essence of both of our systems is repetition. And no one ever talks about that because it sounds boring. Um, but repetition is key. Repetition actually, repetition is the way to mastery, full stop. And so even though I've spoken about some things on this podcast that I've spoken about before, each time you reapproach something, and this also is a function partly of yours and my relationship and the effect that we have on each other and all those intangible things, you say something and you find yourself saying something about the same subject you actually hadn't said before. And I was aware of that a couple of times, or at least a couple of times today when I was talking. So if someone has the reaction in their own mind, oh, I've heard this before, be aware that your learning has just stopped, or I should say potential learning has just stopped in that moment. And that's true for all of our students on both of our sides. We say to our students, if someone comes into our workshop with an excellent yoga background or an excellent Pilates background or some other background and they're, they're a master in their own field, we say to the fullest extent possible, please set your own system aside at the door. Very hard thing to do, of course, because that becomes the new filter through which you are, you know, assessing everything. But to the fullest extent that you can leave your own experiences and your own understanding and knowledge at the door and try to apprehend these things as a complete beginner would with an open mind or in, in Japanese, in fact, it's a, the name of my old business in Canberra, Shoshin. It means beginner's mind, but it's a Zen term. It's the the openness, the willingness to learn, the excitement about contemplating something new without any of that other stuff. That's what we want. That doesn't mean that we can't learn something and doesn't mean that we can't use our learning in future interactions and, if, and so on. So it doesn't mean that at all because that's, again, what the mind jumps to. Oh my God, if I leave my learning at the door, I'm going to know nothing. Actually, you'll know nothing but in the right way. Mm. You might be able to learn something new, in other words. That's what we're right. talking about. Yeah, if you assume there's something there, then the chances are there will be. Absolutely. And if you find yourself that the phrase that I found most helpful when I heard myself saying, I know that, or I know that already, I think, oh, no, I've just, I've just stopped. I've just shut, actually, I've just shut myself off from possibilities. Mm -hmm. So, and you've put your, you've put your awareness either elsewhere or you've started criticizing. Yes. Relative to your, relative to your frame. Yes. Now you're judging their, That's their, it. their spiel or their technique. There relative we to go. Yours. Yeah. Yeah. Defending. Yeah, defending, and we're, we're yeah. on that treadmill. Uh -huh, that's uh -huh. it. So that's mm. that's an important... I think it's a good place to end. I think so, too. So yeah. th thank you. Thank you very thank much you. for the opportunity. Thank you for so much time. Yeah, oh. thank you for your time, Kit. Great pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And we, we might decide to cut this in half, because I think we've been going for about an hour and a half now. It's pretty mm -hmm. typical for us, and it's a short conversation for us. Mm. Um, so look, let me have a look at it. I'll send it to you in its raw form, and you decide whether or not you want to cut it in half. And we'll leave the end bits in, because I've always... always I'm a big believer in doing things live and we, mm. we have, we won't edit what we're doing here. We might cut it in half, but we won't chop bits out or when people are presenting things, they think, Oh my God, I could have, I could have phrased that a bit better or no, mm -hmm. that's,
that's how I actually phrased it at the time. So just live with it already, you know, get over yourself. You're not that important. This is what I say to myself all the time. It doesn't matter. But in, mm-hmm. but in, the, in the positive way, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it's, it's in the same sense that if we'd already prepared what we were going to say, then what was the what would have been the point? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I and I thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Come on. Thanks, kid. Deep thanks. <laughs>